In the gospel we just heard, we hear of those two individuals set up as uh, polar opposites. We might understand them to be, uh, according to the times of their day, the understanding of their, of their own culture, the best of the best and the worst of the worst. The Pharisee would be the best of the best, according to the culture of the day. The Pharisee, of course, a religious leader, one who, who knows the religious, you know, the, the religious dogmas and teachings, who knows the Word of God, who knows the precepts of the law, who observes meticulously all the little details of the law, the washing of the hands and the, the cleansing of this and that and all these various ways in which uh, you know, the, the Lord is pleased, essentially. And so the Pharisees were often viewed as, as those ones who were kind of the, the highest ones on the, on the ladder, so to speak, of religious observance. And so we have this one who's set up here uh, as an example for us. And on the other end, the worst of the worst, as the people of the day might have understood, the tax collector. Of course, as we as often noted, the tax collector were um, Jewish people typically who worked for Rome. They were uh, essentially working for the enemy-occupying co- uh, country uh, to be able to, to work for the enemy. And the way that a tax collector got their money generally was that someone would come, there'd be a certain amount of tax they owed Rome, but they'd add a little extra slice so they could have that for themselves. And so um, they were very often uh, hated by their fellow Jews because they were working for the enemy and they, were, they, they made their money by taxing their brothers and sisters and the Lord. And so not a pleasing job, not one well looked upon. And the story that our blessed Lord sets before um, the Pharisees today, who are indeed convinced of their own righteousness and despise everyone else, he gives this, uh, this example of the two. The Pharisee comes, uh, who should be the example of all on how to pray, and he doesn't really even pray to God. He, as it says, he prays to himself, O oh God, right? So, o oh God, right? He's praying to his own self. I thank you I'm not like the rest of humanity. Thank you I'm not like everybody else. I'm not greedy or dishonest, adulterous, and not like that tax collector over there, right? He begins to count the things, you know, I, I, you know, I tithe, you know, I fast twice a week, I pay tithes on my whole income, right? And so essentially he goes to the temple to the Lord and he basically uh, kind of pats himself on the back a whole bunch and says, man, Lord, you should be really, really proud of me. I got my act together. I'm a fantastic human being. Look at the things that I do. Look at the things I don't do. And especially compared to these terrible people over here, man, I'm just, I'm just a rock star. Thanks for letting me be awesome. He exalts himself rather well. If you want to know what exemplary exaltation of self looks like, this is a passage to go to. And on the other end, we have the tax collector, the worst of the worst of that day, who simply goes before the Lord, doesn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, strikes his breast as a sign of penance and says, oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. One of these is on the path of righteousness, and the other one thinks he is. It's the man who comes and strikes his breast before the Lord and admits his sins that is truly on the path of righteousness. But it's the Pharisee who thinks that he is there. He thinks that because of the things that he has done and merely the external actions, that he's got it all together and, and all is well with his soul, that he is as he should be, and everyone should look to him for guidance on how to live their life. We understand this because when our blessed Lord comes, who is holiness itself, and God himself incarnate, and he comes, and who is it that are those who are the most opposed to him? The scribes, the, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the people who hold themselves up as the righteous ones. 
And rather than show their righteousness by bowing before the Lord in, in humility and recognizing the goodness of God who has come down among us, they're enemies of Christ. And in the end, they kill him. They crucify him, the most painful of deaths. The reality is that they are far from the path of righteousness and far from the Lord whom they think they serve in all of these things. As Catholics today in the 21st century, we are tremendously blessed with the gift of our faith. In ages past, it would be a great burden to be able to come across the information that we have available to us at our fingertips every, every, nearly every moment of the day. The fact is that the internet, although it can be used for many wicked things, also is a tremendous blessing to us in offering us riches of our faith that in, past, in ages past would have been nearly impossible to find. And all of it so easily accessible and very, very often absolutely free. The reality is, though, that in the midst of us being nourished with the gift of our faith in so many ways by the media today, it's an encouragement that I would offer for each of you to be mindful of what you read, what you watch, and what you listen to. Because the reality is there are many things that are taking place in the world, many things that are offered on the internet that presume to be and, and purport to be good Catholic things. And yet, little by little, they will lead souls away from Christ and away from His church. The reality is that the devil is real. Some people don't think so, but he is, in fact, quite real. But he doesn't work oftentimes in the way that people presume that he does. You know, when you think of the devil, many people will conjure up the images of, of kind of violent actions and, you know, plates being smashed on walls and, and you know, people having, you know, the, you know the, these physical attacks from the evil one and all this kind of very strong and, and greatly cinematic um, things about God, about the evil one um, who comes um, to attack us, to, 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 to fight against us, right? And so we have this idea that the evil one is always coming, he always manifests himself, or very often will manifest himself in very clear, violent man, in, in a very clear and violent manner. But this is not the case. Certainly he does do this from time to time. You know, we can look to the lives of the saints. You know, he lit St. John Vianney's bed on fire one night while he was sleeping. You know, we know that St. Padre Pio would often have physical attacks from the enemy. And we know that there are other instances where, where the evil one does show, or at least, you know, you know he basically a, a, throws a temper tantrum. I mean, he tries to show that he has power, but in fact he has none. He's just trying to show like he does. And he comes sometimes in these rather clear and obvious ways that one would simply look around and go, well, that is not of God. But the vast majority of the time the devil works, he is quiet, hidden, and subtle. And this is the way he prefers to work. Because whenever he is very clear, it's easy for us to look at him and go, well, that's not of God, and therefore to turn away. But whenever he is subtle and he works quietly, how easy it is for us to be persuaded and to be convinced and convicted that, in fact, yeah, this sounds right. This sounds like the way for me to follow. And the evil one will, little, little by little, lead us away from our blessed Lord. This is the devil's ultimate goal. Because if we remain in Christ, if we remain in his church, we are safe. God is the all-powerful one over whom Satan has zero power whatsoever. 
So if we remain in the Lord, if we remain in His church, if we remain in His grace, we can be at peace in all things. And so the devil wants to pull us away, to steal us from the grace of Christ, to separate us from the church, to separate us from the sacraments, to do whatever he can to pull us away from our blessed Lord, so that no longer being in the company of the one who is stronger than he, we will become the weak one upon whom he can feast. Indeed, St. Peter reminds us that the devil is prowling like a roaring lion, seeking whom he can devour. But he cannot devour us, he cannot consume us if we are closely in the hands of Christ. And so as to ensure that we are indeed always close to our blessed Lord, always close to his church. And so I would give you a few things that I would encourage you to reflect upon. And, and if you ever hear of these things in anything that you watch, read, or listen to, that you would kindly and quickly stop and move on to something different. There are many things that will begin as purporting to be true Catholicism or pure Catholicism. When these words are used, very often they are a sign of individuals who have set themselves over and against the church whom they see as a tainted Catholicism. Martin Luther also said that he was preserving the true faith, that he was offering pure faith. And yet, we know that he was doing quite the opposite. He was renouncing much of it and leading himself and many others away from Christ and his church. So if one purports simply to be true Catholicism or pure Catholicism, see the red flags popping up right behind them and move on. If one speaks of the Second Vatican Council as heretical or contrary to the Catholic faith, see the red flags. One can simply acknowledge that, yes, there are things that may be problematic or confusing or uh, vague in the Second Vatican Council documents. One can have a a good and and genuine discussion about concerns of, of this seems to be contrary to something in this way. One can have a discussion about things, but to say that the bishops of the church, guided by the Holy Spirit, were wrong is a problem. To claim that a council validly called and concluded is contrary to the faith is not Catholic teaching. It's not possible. It is not an option. This is contrary and, again, destructive to the faith. If someone says that Pope Francis is not the Pope, or that there is no Pope at all these days, such as Sidivacantism, which means simply the open sea, a vacant sea, that no one is occupying the seat of Peter, flee from them, because this too is wrong. It doesn't mean we have to agree with every decision of the Holy Father. It doesn't mean that every word that comes forth from his mouth requires of us an absolute submission of will and intellect. If the Holy Father says, this is the best movie in the world, I don't have to agree with him. But it doesn't mean that I have to renounce him. One can have issues or concerns and yet remain firmly in the bark of Peter. If one encourages you to attend another, uh, another community that celebrates uh, traditional Mass, particularly um, Society of St. Pius X being the predominant one in our area, who I know are at work trying to lead uh, people in our community, specifically St. Agnes, uh, to go to the Society Chapel instead, because again, they have a pure Catholicism present there, I would encourage you not to go. 
Because again, this too is not part of Christ's desire. The society, although they have the sacraments, although they have many things that purport to be of our Catholic faith, they are not fully in union with the church. I've said this before as a point of, of, practical, of practical obviousness of things. Every year, the Diocese of Baton Rouge, the Catholic Diocese of Baton Rouge, issues a directory indicating all the priests, all the clergy, all the ministries, and all the parishes or chapels that are Catholic chapels in the diocese. And if you look in there, you'll find Father Alex Harb, for example, who is a Maronite Rite Catholic priest residing here at St. Agnes. He offers some of the Masses sometimes, right? So he's Catholic. He's not Roman, but he's a Catholic priest working and living validly within our diocese and ministering properly. Who you will not find are the priests or the chapel of the Society of St. Pius X, because they have no actual connection to the life of the church in Baton Rouge. They have become something other, something set aside. If one invites you to go with them to the chapel at Society of St. Pius X, I would encourage you to invite them to come with you to Mass at St. Agnes. Invite them to stay here, to stay home, close to Christ, close to His church. If one begins to question the validity of the Novus Ordo, the new Mass, the Mass we are currently celebrating as I'm speaking, again, if questions are, are given, it is simply to walk away because there is nothing that will be good from this. The fact is that one can have all sorts of critiques and concerns about things in the life of the church, whether the theology, whether the liturgy, whether the pastoral application, whatever the case. But it doesn't mean we simply throw out the baby with the bathwater. It means we have to wrestle with complications and wrestle with the reality of life being messy, not only in our lives and in the world, but also in the church. It's to know that there are answers and responses to all of these things. And to the extent that one would seek to lead us away is poison for our soul. Every last one of us, at least I hope, if someone were to sit you down at a table and to slide a glass over to you and to say, here, it's 99% water and just 1% arsenic, would you drink it? I would think not, right? You would gladly go, thank you for the notice. I will take not your arsenic, even though it's mostly pure. And this is what heresy is, and this is what these false teachings are in the church, is the, devil, the devil's not creative. He can only take what God has created and twist it, to distort it, to, treat, to try to lead us away. So this is how the devil works. He takes something that's 99% true, he slides it our way, and he invites us to drink of it. And once we do, he says, good, now here's another one, and here's another one, and here's another one. And the fact is that Many things may seem to be true on the front end, but as one goes deeper and deeper, you realize that one is being led away from the church, away from Christ. All of this is a, a via negativa, a way of don't do these things. Don't listen or, or and, and integrate into self one, oneself these things. But on the other end, there is always a positive and a more appropriate thing for us. So after those cautions, I would like to give you encouragement of things to do in your faith. First is, as I've mentioned before, read the saints. Read the saints. Read the lives of the saints. They are a wonderful instruction on us. But also read things that saints have written. When you find books where the author's name is S.T. period, pick it up and read it because it is tried and it is true. 
Again, the devil doesn't do new things. Anything we might think that we, are, that we are wrestling with in the world today, the church has already seen it and the saints have already responded to it thoroughly many times often in centuries past. Always remark about this. Usually around Christmas and Easter time each year, the so-called History Channel comes out with a, a new thing of, oh, the, we found a new gospel this time, huh? We found something and it's gonna break every mold that you've ever understood about the person of Jesus. This has revelatory things that we've, that we've never heard before. And then they proceed to tell us about the gospel of whoever it is that year. And then the church wisely kind of just smiles and pats them on their head because you can go back and look at the fathers of the church in the second century and third century and fourth century who picked that very gospel to pieces because it was absolute heresy. And we threw it away for a reason, and the world would be better off not dumpster diving for gospels, but to pick up the ones that are actually worth reading. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's a simple reality of things. The devil can't do new things, so he just keeps trying the same thing over and over. So if we read the lives of the saints, if we read the stories of the saints, then we're able to, uh, to bring within our own heart the response that they themselves have already made to things that we will be experiencing in our own lives today. There's nothing new under the sun. Read the saints and know that they are sure ground for us. Additionally, read the fathers of the church. The fathers of the church are the, the, essentially the, the writings of, of many saints, not always saints, but the writings of these individuals who at the beginning of the church, right after the apostles, so uh, basically when the first apostle dies, those, uh, those writers until approximately the eighth century with St. John Damascene, uh, these men were incredible writers, incredible thinkers, incredible men of faith, able to integrate the, the faith and, and to speak to it and to explain it and, and make sense of it in ways that are still astonishing in their richness. And there is no end to the, to the church fathers, it seems. If you go in my office, anyone's ever gone to my office, you likely have, have noticed a bookshelf with a whole lot of volumes that look very, very similar. It's a selection, it's a collection rather, of, of the early church fathers, a compilation. It's something like 45 volumes, each 1,000 to 1,500 pages apiece. And that's not all of the writings. There's plenty more that could be said. In fact, St. Augustine, who wrote and, 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 and preached and taught, what, 1,600 years ago, more or less, he still has writings today that have not even been translated into English yet. There's still stuff out there that the world is just so prolific in the early church that we just haven't even gotten around to it. There is so much in the early church fathers that is instructive to us in our faith. There certainly has been a revival in recent years. There are numerous authors who seek to, to encourage us in, in, the, in the writings of the early church fathers because they are immensely Catholic. And they show us that what we believe today is what was believed in the first days of the church, which is a strong encouragement to us to abide here despite whatever difficulties we experience. Above all, it is to stay close to our Lord and stay close to his church. Taking the note from the early church fathers, many of them drove home the point that where the bishop is, there is Christ. If you stay close to the bishop of our diocese, he will keep you close to Christ. And if you separate yourself from the bishop of this diocese, you separate yourself from Christ. That's a simple reality of things. We can try to complicate it and do all sorts of mental gymnastics, but Christ has set things up in a particular manner, and he entrusts the church to us and us to the church. 
is for us as we continue to live this gift of our faith in this world today, not to be shaken by the things that we hear, but to approach all things with a confident faith, is to be able to acknowledge the fact that, that there are individuals who, if we listen to them, will lead us away from Christ, even though, like the Pharisee, they think they are right on the path and everyone else has simply missed the mark. But if we listen attentively to the church, if we listen to the saints, if we listen to the fathers, there is certainty of our salvation. There's a certainty of of the peace of soul that we ourselves can possess because they will always keep us close. They'll keep us close to the grace of the Lord, keep us close to the sacraments, keep us close to our bishop, who all of these things allow us to stay close to Christ.